Welcome back to the Naked Truth. Peace to you. We are going to pick up where we left off in the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And again, trigger alert, because the last couple of chapters have been some craziness. It's craziness to me. It seems hard for me to believe that you could, anyone could possibly believe that a God Almighty is the one giving out these orders um, and that God is unbiased. The two can't possibly be true. But let's read it and see. Verse 1, verse chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. So the first thing to notice is more patriarchy. It's the man who's allowed to uh, declare or demand divorces, not the women, the females. Uh, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is what it says um, he detests her for some unclean thing. We've already read in the previous couple of chapters where if he has sex with his new wife and he's not pleased with her sexually, he can give her a certificate of divorce. He can even publicly humiliate her and accuse her of shameful behavior, it says, um, if he's, if she's found to be loose. Even if she's a virgin, then she has to prove that she's a virgin. Otherwise, she faces the death penalty. It's madness. Verse 2, when she's departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. So now he's given her a divorce after he's had sex with her, but he wasn't pleased with her. So now a man is allowed to divorce his wife and she's uh, and send her away. Verse 3, if the latter husband, so she's gone and married again. Verse 3, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife. So now the woman who's been divorced from one husband because he didn't like her sex game has now remarried another, a new man. And if he doesn't like her sex game either, he can dismiss her and give her a certificate of divorce also. Or if he dies... Here's the regulations of what happens then. Verse 4. Then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So now, <laughs> if you believe this is from God, the woman who is has, has been divorced now or either divorced twice or either divorced once and now widowed, is not allowed to return to the first husband who gave her a certificate of divorce, who dismissed her, because that would be considered abominable. None of the rapes we read about previously are considered abominable um, by the Lord. And uh, even the point, and one thing to remember about this marriage thing is, we read previously that if uh, some sick guy, some nut, rapes a woman, um, if and they're found out, then he can just pay the father of the woman 50 shekels and then the poor victim becomes his wife for life so does that really sound like what god almighty would have you do so we've already read also that if the rape victim if you get pregnant say from rape and have that baby the baby's not going to make it into the assembly because illegitimate births aren't allowed to be a part of the assembly so if the woman is forced to uh, have the baby, which, you know, in modern times in America, that's exactly what would happen in some states, then the child's not still not going to be accepted as far as as far as being part of the assembly. Uh, but she still has to be married to the rapist, the one who violated her in the first place. 
And then if the rapist decides to, well, it says the rapist isn't allowed to give her uh, to, to, to divorce the victim. He's forced, she's forced to stay with him for life. But say that the woman falls into this situation in chapter 24, that she's been married and now her husband doesn't want her and dismisses her. Now the second husband dies after he after he's married or and didn't like her either in bed or dies. Then she's not allowed to go back to the first husband who may have defiled her in the first place. Uh, because that would be considered an abomination. Why are things like that considered abominations by the Lord God Almighty, but not the rapes? Does that really seem like what God would be saying? It doesn't seem like it to me. Verse five: When a man, it seems like to me, just more property is what's what's in, what's uh, valued here. The woman valued as property, and if she's someone else's property, and they've defiled her, in other words, had sex with her, then that makes her off limits and un un unappealing to the previous husband. How did that make her? How do you? How does that make her seem to the rest of the society that has rules like this? They can't possibly think of her. She's not considered a virgin anymore. Uh, she's been divorced now, and you aren't allowed to marry a person who's divorced. Um, I think that's how the regulation goes. In because um, Jesus reflects on this in the New Testament, where he talks about divorce laws, and he denounces all of this. He, he says it makes it very clear that if you get divorced for any reason other than sexual immorality, and we've gone over that in those readings, that that goes beyond just thinking of someone as a cheater. Because again, if a if people are married and they uh, agree in their marriage contract to allow other people into their marriage, like threesomes or side pieces, that's between them. That's the contract of their marriage. So that's technically not adultery. You're not breaking the contract of your marriage. But if you, it's sexual morality can include other things like these rapes that we've read about or using your sexual gender sex, that sort of sex prowess over your partner say like if you're abusive beating your partner because they're weaker than you are that's sexually immoral it's using your sex in an immoral way has nothing to do with having sex it has everything to do with your sex as far as male and female sex um so those are acceptable reasons for a divorce under christian and under the christian doctrine in the gospels so these things here uh, you get a choice you can believe these things if you believe everything in the bible from Genesis to Revelation, or if you're a Christian, lean into what Jesus says. Verse 5, when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Do they really think it's about the wife being happy that her husband is home for a year? Uh, or is it about the man being able to stay home and do what he wants to with or to his new property, his new wife? For a year and not have to be bothered with having to do any business um, or be drafted for a war. Uh, it's patriarchy. You really think it's about the woman? Verse 6 No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. So uh, it's talking about when you um, use a millstone to grind, say, like corn or wheat or um, barley or something like that. There's a lower millstone where the grain rests and there's an upper millstone. I think it's usually heavier and it sort of rolls over the grains until they're crushed till till the wheat becomes flour. So it's saying here 
that if you take the um, upper or the lower, you're actually affecting that person's livelihood and their ability to make money and eat. Because, again, you have to be able to crush it to make that flour to either use for cooking or for sale. Uh, Property rights. Verse 7, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. So, kidnapping is considered more serious than rape, because here it's saying if you kidnap someone and mistreat them, then it's the death penalty. But if you kidnap someone and don't mistreat them, then it's okay. Say, like, if you kidnap a little kid and just treat them as your own, that's okay. But if you treat kidnap some kid but mistreat or abuse them, then it's the death penalty. Does that sound like a fair and unbiased Lord or even a, un, a just system? It doesn't. It doesn't sound like it to me, but it is how it reads. So it's that's the law when it comes to kidnapping. So I guess if you're a kidnapper, as long as you're good to the victim, then there's um, no need for the death penalty. And as far as um, mistreats or sells them, don't forget that when the patriarchs uh, had their back in Genesis, when uh, a few books back, the very first book in the Bible, when um, the brothers of Joseph got jealous or envious of him, they sold him into slavery. And um, so I guess that's technically not kidnapping, but he was 17 years old. So and they threw, let him they uh, threw him into a pit. That's kidnapping. That's uh, false imprisonment. So um, just because he's their brother, it's okay. No, it's not okay. But not only that, they definitely sold him and then he was mistreated or they mistreated him and then they sold him. Uh, But they weren't accused of anything wicked at all. They didn't get uh, called out as an abominable at all during that uh, narrative. Only later, once Joseph was taken as a sold as a slave in Egypt and um, took on a whole different role in the narrative, did they even did their actions even uh, really come to light as far as some sort of recompense? And even then, it um, they sort of got a pass on it by their brother who was merciful to them. Verse eight. But the, my point is, why wasn't that called out then as abominable and the death penalty given out then? If you're talking about a Lord that's unchanging and and consistent and unbiased, why wouldn't all of that treatment of Joseph have been? instantly condemned and called abominable from then um, just like it's being declared as abominable now in this uh, book of the Bible it's inconsistent it seems unlikely to me that any of this is from God Almighty at all verse 8 take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests the Levites shall teach you just as I commanded them so you shall be careful to do so um uh, it's talking about social distancing in modern terms and quarantining when there's an outbreak of disease that the people are to be um, uh, obey the different social distancing rules that are laid out um, by previously when it comes to leprosy uh, as we read them in the previous books of the Bible um, but a thought that comes to mind there is remember when the pandemic broke out there are Bible thumpers who are out there protesting even having to wear a mask they're okay with abor- uh, with abortions forced abor- uh, I'm sorry they're okay with uh, invasive procedures that will um, to prevent 
an abortion, to make you not get an abortion, to force you to have a baby if you're um, even if you're a rape victim or an incest victim. Uh, but when it came to a mask, they were up in arms, shouting and screaming and carrying on and throwing fits. But even that's not faithful to what it even says in the Bible when it comes to social distancing and controlling the, the spread of disease. The Bible thumpers in America and around the world are some of the lowest of the low. They don't even bother to read the things that are in the Bible. And if they do, they just ignore them and choose to go along with some other dumb ish. And think that that's what's being righteous and that's doing God's business. And Jesus warns us about that in the New Testament, that people will do those things and think that they're doing God's service. Um, but it's actually wickedness. Verse 9, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. So uh, it's now reflecting back to what happened to Miriam when she was stricken with leprosy and was uh, forced to be socially distanced, quarantined from the rest of the camp for a week because of her um because of leprosy but don't read over what don't forget why she was quarantined and cast out she, that happened to her because her and her brother Aaron who didn't get the same punishment uh, according to the narrative proved to be racist either racist or um what's the other word um oh i guess hebrew nationalists they didn't want they they had beef with Moses because he married an Ethiopian woman although they were all in Africa all in Egypt for um at the time when they were rescued from slavery for some reason Moses brother and sister Aaron and Miriam took issue with him marrying an Ethiopian woman it seems to me it's because of racism but it's not explicitly it doesn't explicitly say that's the reason but it does explicitly say they had issue with him because he married an Ethiopian woman um, so if it's not racism, call it what you will, but that's what happened to her and in according to the story, and that's why she, according to the story, was stricken with leprosy from the Lord and forced to quarantine for a week. So when Moses is bringing this up, presuming this is Moses actually um, recounting this to the people, he probably gets a little bit of satisfaction out of the fact that they paid a price for uh, their bigotry. Whether it's racism or xenophobia or whatever you want to call it, whatever the reason, Moses is probably a little satisfied that the Lord instantly karmaed his brother and sister for uh, objecting to his choice in wives, in 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 wives and spouses. Um, so he's telling them with an exclamation point, "Don't forget it! Don't forget what happened to his sister." Verse ten: When you lend your brother anything, you should not go into his house to get his pledge. So now it's saying, it's talking about loans now and collateral. That's what the pledge is. So it's saying if you lend someone something, then their house, their abode is off limits for you to enter into it to go get the collateral. Verse 11, you shall stand outside and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. So to respect your brothers, and it's, again, patriarch, it's about the man. To respect him as a man, you don't enter his house to go get the collateral. You wait outside and let him bring bring out the collateral for the loan to you. I mean, I guess that's basic respect um, for, you know, his manhood. Verse 12, and if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. So if you're lending, making a loan to someone who's poor, 
um, you're not allowed to go into their house to get the collateral for it. And if you do get collateral for it, you can't keep that collateral overnight um, uh, because he's poor and needs it. Verse 13, I assume, let's see, verse 13. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. So I guess the pledge it's talking about must be clothing. If someone's poor, the only thing they have is collateral, I guess, would be the clothes on their back. So if that's the case... With, before the sun sets, return their collateral to them so that at the very least they aren't sleeping but naked uh, in the elements. Uh, okay, verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. So this is one of the few instances where there is actually... Um, an unbiased approach to everyone so that whether you're of the children of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, or if you're a sojourner with them, because remember it was a mixed multitude that went up out of Egypt when they were emancipated. So it's not all the same. Um, everyone here doesn't have the same ethnic background. Um, but it's saying here in this verse, everyone's to be treated the same um, and that you shall not oppress the hired servant. Who is poor and needy so give people or that are of your own people or not that same respect um, of, um, when it comes to the loans and the pledges the collateral verse 15 each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it for he is poor and has set his heart on it lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you so it's saying that even if it's a foreigner, they even get the ear of the Lord when it comes to oppression. So if you keep the collateral, say, uh, or even in this case, their wages. So it's talking about what we call in modern terms, day laborers. That once someone works a day, you give them their wages for that day. You don't make them two weeks to get their, make them wait two weeks to get their paycheck or even one week to get their paycheck. Instead, you give them their pay that day. And if you really think about it, now that I think about it, that is more fair to give people their pay day by day rather than to withhold it, use it for whatever else, like gaining interest for a week or two for yourself, and then give them that smaller portion without the interest after a week or two of you using their wages for whatever else it is you need to use it for to balance your books or to make some other business moves. That's actually not fair to hold the money for those two weeks because you're using money that's theirs for your own purposes. So truly, if you're going to be faithful to what it says here, day laborers is the way, or at least being paid daily is the way, the proper way to adhere to um, people being paid their salaries, their income, their wages. Um, verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children. Nor shall children children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So, we've read again and again how the different the many different things that that call for the death penalty um, over the last four or five books. So this is the fifth. So over the last few books that we've been reading here in the Bible. But if you go back, if you're an originalist and go back to the very first case of uh, blood being shed, murder, killing, however you want to phrase it, Cain killing Abel, uh, the death penalty is explicitly forbidden right there in plain English, you know, English translation. 
So how in the world is it that you're to believe that the Lord is consistent and unchanging, and yet you see here, the death penalty has been uh, prescribed for about a hundred different things at least since we've been reading um, so far, including if the um, if people are caught having sex. Uh, we just read in a couple of chapters ago, caught having sex. Even if she, if the woman is a victim, if she doesn't cry out and she's uh, caught, it says because you know they're found out. Uh, then the death penalty is, is is suitable for both of them, even though she didn't have a choice in it. It's how it reads, if I recall right. You know, I could be wrong, but you can read it for yourself. The rape regulations are pretty awful, uh, at least for the woman they are. The rapist gets more rights than the victim does in the last couple of chapters. Uh, so, but anyway, here it's saying that you shall not cause the children to be put to death for their father's sins. But instead, it, the sinner themselves shall be put to death. But again, that contradicts what happens at the very beginning, that there is no death penalty. And if it is, if you carry out the death penalty, you're going to bring sin on yourself for doing it. Um, somehow all that's changed. Verse 17, you shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. So it's saying, uh, uh, be fair as far as your the justice system goes for the stranger or the fatherless. So when it says the stranger, presumably that means foreigners who are um, who are among the people, among the congregation. Um, and it says the fatherless. So I mean, why would the fatherless not be able to? entitled to some justice also I guess because in this patriarch patriarchal society depending on who your father is you may be able to be able to get away with stuff especially if your father is among the religious um, elite then because they're exempt from a lot of these different rules that they're laying out for the people to follow but it's saying whatever the case may be that you're supposed to be fair in the justice system and when it comes to um, widows since again it's a patriarchal system so a woman's livelihood for the most part depends on the man in her household um so if she's a widow there's no man in her household so cut her some slack and don't take her clothes as a pledge uh, uh i mean i guess it's saying at least leave the widow with some clothes on her back verse 18 but you shall remember that you were a slave in egypt and the lord your god redeemed you from there Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So Moses, if this is Moses speaking, is, is telling people, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget how the awful situation you were in, where you were a slave, where you were an enslaved person being abused and crying out for help, hoping, waiting for some deliverance. Don't forget that. Because once you forget it, you run the risk of doing that to someone else. Because you forgot how awful it is. Verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So it kind of goes without saying that I'm pretty sure farmers and, and agriculture in America, the industry in America, doesn't abide by this at all. And America claims to be a God-fearing Christian nation, and yet in America... You're to glean and harvest every single corner of your crop that you can and make every penny that you can on it. And even then, you're still getting subsidies for those crops. Don't forget that. 
the farm industry, the agriculture industry in America is a huge welfare industry. They don't call it welfare because it's not generally for black people. The number of black farmers, and they also get discriminated against and don't get the subsidies white farmers do. You can look it up yourself and see. They get the same discrimination that other black people get. They just get it even more in that industry because they're an even smaller percentage of that industry. And that's historic. That's not anything recent. That's been happening for generations. Um, But you see, America pretends to be God-fearing and Christian. It's not at all. It's not Christian, and it's absolutely not even God-fearing because if you're saying that you believe this is God giving out these orders and commands, then why aren't you doing that when it comes to your farm and your agriculture? Why aren't you leaving something for the poor and the needy? Why why are you gleaning and harvesting every single corner of your crop to get every penny that you can for sale, not to give away? You're not leaving the land empty, uh, you know, not harvesting it and working it for a year like it says to do in previous chapters. That's what you're supposed to do if you're in agriculture or have a vineyard or a farm. You're supposed to, that every seventh year, just let the land lie and let it do its thing. Let the fruit and harvest grow and fall off and do their own thing and leave it so that people passing by, the farmer, I'm sorry, the stranger, the widow, the poor, the needy can just pass by and get it, whatever they need to eat. You know that America doesn't do that at all. Verse 20, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs Again, it shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So again, it's supposed to be doing the same thing when it comes to olive trees also. You beat them to get the olives to shake loose from the from the tree and then harvest them. It says here, don't go and harvest every single olive that you can. Instead, leave something for the poor and the needy. And again, you know that that's not how it happens in America at all. They shake them trees till all that fruit and stuff comes off of it until every single one of them comes off of it. And then sell sell every single one of them that they can, the good and the bad. And what they can't sell, they get subsidies for, welfare checks for. It's plain and simple. That's what it is. It's welfare. Verse 20. And then go out and vote for against other people getting welfare. It's a sick system. That people get entitled and privileged and forget that they were slaves. Just like it's saying, don't forget you were a slave. People forget you're getting subsidies. You're getting welfare for your farm. You're getting welfare for your business. You're getting welfare for yourself. So why are you so against anyone else getting welfare? It's usually because of racism. Because welfare, the word, is generally attached to black people or people of color. When it's attached to anyone else, they call it a subsidy and smile about it. It's, it's, it's very sick. Verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So it's saying whether it's a fruit tree, an olive tree, or a grape tree, whatever, a grapevine, whatever the case may be, whatever it is you're harvesting there, basically, um, uh, leave some for the poor and the needy. Don't just uh, harvest every single bit of the land that you can because uh, it's not good for the land according to the previous chapters and here it's not righteous to because it falls in the, the category of greed uh, and uh, selfishness when the land is everyone's you don't own the land you may own a deed to the land or you may have rights to the land while you live or while you own some paperwork for the land but the land was here before you and there were people here before you And the land will be here after you, and there'll be people on that land after you. So you really don't own the land. At best, you're leasing it. And 
for that reason, beyond that reason, because there are poor and needy people, feed them, especially if you have the land yielding fruit for you. Don't just harvest every single corner of it out of greed and uh, boils down to wickedness. Instead, consider where you came from. And in the case of farmers and agriculture, consider your own welfare too. So why in the world should you be against other people being fed by the same government that cuts you a check to feed you? Verse 22, and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So uh, being reminded again that don't forget where you came from. You came from, from a place of desperation where you were crying out and begging to be rescued from. Um, so don't forget that just like you were poor and needy one time, don't overlook and step over the poor and needy that you encounter now that you aren't in that same situation. Because uh, it could very easily happen to you again. You could fall into enslavement or poverty, need and want very easily. The Lord can easily, just like the Lord opens up the ground in the Old Testament to swallow up the evil people, people considered evil, or strike them down if they do the wrong thing. The same thing can happen to you. You can get that same instant karma if you forget where you came from and start to oppress people who are actually in the same boat as you, but you get to be on an upper deck and they're in the steerage, uh, so to speak. Um, but that was the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me. And I hope you'll join me again for the Naked Truth. Stay safe. God bless you. And I'll see you next time. I love you. Peace be with you.